1: Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Johnson. I'm here today with Laura McEnany, professor of history at Whittier College and an organization of American historians' distinguished lecturer, to talk about her new book, Post-War, Waging Peace in Chicago. Laura, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So in your your first book, you wrote about Cold War civil defense and how Americans responded to militarization in their daily lives. So what led you to transition to this book about the working class during and after World War II?
2: Well, part of it in the first book was that was strange about writing about civil defense is that you're writing about war um, and militarism, but the war never comes. And so you're you're really talking about war moods, war modes, war mindsets. and as I as I started to think about the next project, I, it, what stuck in my head was how deeply war as a mindset was um, embedded in American culture and American discourse. And but but this idea for post wars, I I think it would be more accurate to say that it came from my teaching because um, I'm a teacher scholar and. I teach the U.S. survey course every semester, and I noticed how often I was talking about post-war periods, starting with Reconstruction, what happened after World War I, the aftermath of World War II, Vietnam's ending and legacies. And I started to think about what what this meant. And um, part of it is that students are very curious about outcomes. And it's really hard to say, "Well, the war ended on this date, and this was the clear outcome. Usually, the conversation is, well, the you know, the, we transitioned from war to peace, and these were the questions that were introduced at the end of the war. And in some ways, we're still grappling with those questions. um and we could think of reconstruction as the classic example of that. So I've often fantasized uh, about. Creating a, a comparative post-wars class in which war is the prelude, but we're really talking about um, post-wars, the aftermath and ex- examining human relationships with war in the aftermath of the violence.
1: Oh, I would take that class in a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you situate this book in Chicago. What, what made that city such an ideal case study?
2: Well, the, the city uh, was one of the arsenals of democracy, and I should full confession, I'm from there um, and so fascinated with the city's history. Um, but it's a very important pay- place. It's where Roosevelt makes his very famous 1937 quarantine speech, where he sort of foreshadows that the United States is going to become a part of the brewing troubles in Europe, Um, It's the place, of course, where the atomic bomb, um, the the scientists who make the atomic bomb that end the war um, are engaged in that work. And it's a place where population movements become very interesting. There is a significant um, black migration from south to north. And of course, that's a continuation of a longer process Um, There are white working class Americans who are the children, some of whom are immigrants, some of whom are the children of immigrants. Um, And there is a Japanese American population, 20 to 30,000 that go to the city after camp. And so there, there were just all these ways in which the city became my, for example, city, my kind of thought experiment. What if I picked a city and really looked at, what it was going through as it transitioned from war to peace, and because these populations were there, I found it really tempting to to choose Chicago. Yeah,
1: and one of the things that you write about in in Chicago is what you call war liberalism. And just so, so for the listeners, what what does war liberalism? What, what makes that different from maybe New Deal liberalism?
2: Well. I, I look, I, I look at war liberalism as a language of entitlement, mm. a, a way of talking about people's worthiness and, um, and, and a justification for benefits from the state. And it's a very working class war liberalism that is about, um, claiming a sacrifice and then claiming a benefit. And, it's, you know, whenever we use the term liberalism, it's really hard to pin down because human beings use it and they tailor it and they change it and they apply it. Um, but the the working class war liberalism that emerges after 1945 is is an echo of New Deal liberalism because people see a welfare state already in place, even Um, populations like African-Americans who were denied access to much of that New Deal state still saw governance in place to carry Americans through a national emergency. Um, But what underlies this liberalism is war. It is a claim of entitlement based on an experience of violence, wherever that person was experiencing that violence. Could be on the home front, could be directly on the war front. But everyone felt a relationship to that war. And the, the discussion of worthiness and entitlement came from that war. But it is really a darker echo of New Deal liberalism because violence underlays people's suffering and, and their needs, frankly.
1: Yeah. And so one of the issues that war liberalism takes up in, in this book is this issue of housing. It's one that kind of pops up all the way through the book, even though there's kind of a chapter on it. Um, why is that such a pressing issue for people in Chicago during and after the war?
2: Well it's a national pro- housing is the national problem and within housing of course we see racial conflict we see gender struggles housing housing is the issue and within that issue there are so many ways to look at the transition from war to peace but there's just there's a nationwide shortage of decent affordable housing and this stressed everyone from San Francisco to New York, Chicago in between. Um, and this this is one way in to looking at war liberalism, um, because housing was so important to any war effort. If you can't house your workers, you don't have war workers. Um, and so it's a place where we see government activism um on a really different scale. And I thought it would be interesting to examine this notion of war liberalism in the post-war apartment. Rather than looking as we often do at the population that's suburbanized, meaning chasing people in their cars from city to suburb, I really wanted to sort of stay in the city, And see what the housing situation was and how it played out um, in a city that had been so instrumental to the war effort.
1: Yeah. And because you stay in the city and look at people in apartments, you get to talk about rent control in this book, which I just I found fascinating, in part because it's not, you know, a simple policy history of how we get rent control. But you show that people had to work really hard to take advantage of rent control and make sure, you know, landowners actually follow the law and they could actually get this benefit. And so, you know, what did that actually look like? Why did why did they have to work so hard? And what did that look like?
2: So rent control is part of the overall price control policies that are passed in early in the war in January of 1942. And um, rent control is interesting because it's the only program, it's part of rationing and price controls, but it's the only program where, where it was necessary to invite the government into your home to show them the evidence that you were being taken advantage of by an unscrupulous landlord. So rent control was part of controlling the price of housing, and as I said, that would ensure that we had a stable workforce um, of of military workers. Um, and, And what I found when I went to look at the records was something just fascinating. I thought initially when I went to the archive that I would see sort of bureaucratic records, how many people used rent control And, you know, by the way, three quarters of Americans lived in areas that were rent controlled during the war. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought I would find sort of sanitized bureaucratic records when I went to the National Archives. And what I found were stories, stories from ordinary working class, from poor to working class uh, city dwellers who were trying to get the state, the, the federal state, because rent control is federally passed and administered, locally implemented, who are trying to get the state involved in their lives to referee the fights they were having with their landlords. Um, so rent control becomes a, a kind of dialogue between landlord and tenant and adjudicated by the state. And so The records are really very intimate portraits of people trying to describe to the government the conditions in which they're living, why those are unjust, and why they need the state to come in and umpire the fight. Uh, And the stories are um, varied, personal, painful, um, and just endlessly fascinating as a chronicle of how working class people were trying to transition from war to peace.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that you uncover is just how popular rent control um, actually was. What, why that program, in contrast to some of the others that weren't as popular? Why was rent control so popular?
2: Well, it, it again, it hit it hit at an issue that that is deeply personal: housing, where we live, the, the home we make. Um, and for we're mostly a nation of renters um, at the end of the war, and and so housing is a very precious and scarce commodity um the the thing about rent control is that people uh, renters were a class we can think of them as a class and we can think of landlords as a class and unlike the workplace where as a worker you go in and you're under the surveillance of your boss you can leave the workplace you can take your class identity and bring it elsewhere in in the post-war apartment building um Workers were living with their bosses, essentially, unless the landlord was absentee. But often we see uh, different classes of people living together and trying to claim war's spoils. And and so the the challenge is who's going to get uh, the referee to rule in their favor? Uh, And so people write very compelling petitions, handwritten letters, letters, to to give these personal accounts of war's aftermath and the toll that the war took on them as part of building a case for activist government. Um, The interesting thing about other kinds of price controls is people, you know, Americans, it's hard to make a generalization about price control because there would be irritations about meat and sugar and there would be irritations about price control on clothing. And this was also part of a critique of rationing. But... Rent control remained in the United States, in Chicago in particular, until 1953. And as other commodities were decontrolled, working class Americans were seeing price bites of 40 to 50 to 60 percent. So the more successful rent control was at holding prices down, prices only in Chicago lifted maybe about five to seven percent. People started to think this is effective governance um, and felt less bothered by um, the intervention.
1: Yeah, that that persistence of rent control allows you to make a really important claim that kind of challenges some of the conventional stories about post-war political history. And so, for listeners who really aren't familiar with that sort of conventional story of what happens after the war, um, could you kind of outline for us what that actually looks like and how rent control complicates that story?
2: Well, there's a debate. You know, in some senses, we're we're continuing to have this debate: how much or how little government should regulate our lives Um, and this is true in the post-war period because when you make a war you make a state a big state to fight that war and the key policy question is in 1945 to what degree should we dismantle this state as we transition from war to peace so if we look at the post-war, we see this debate in, in every policy issue, what to do with veterans, what to do with workers, what to do with Japanese Americans who have been incarcerated, what to do with renters and, and other people who are using price controls. And the. so we understand that there's a popular political debate about how much government should be in our lives. There's also a scholarly debate about what happens to the state after World War II. And generally as historians, we've been leaning in the direction of people, people grew impatient with the state. They wanted much, much, much less of it. To some degree, this is true. They're working, we see a working class fatigue with state intervention, that is true. But we also see working class Americans, even if they're weary of government, they're wary of no government. And they're wary of no government because of prices, because rent control had worked. It had held the line on housing prices, the most scarce commodity, um, the thing that challenged them in the post-war period. And so they got cranky about government intervention when it failed to fulfill their high expectations, when it failed to fulfill the idealism of their war liberalism. So it's inaccurate to say that after World War II, Americans wanted no government or very, very minimal government. They wanted government where it could be effective. They wanted government where it could protect and sustain their class mobility.
1: And, and you know, so far I've been using the, the term post war, as if there's kind of only one meaning for post war, as if it ends in August 1945. But one of the things that you try to point out in this book is that there are many post wars, depending on which group you actually focus on, um, ending in in post war, uh, August 1945 might not make sense for Japanese Americans, for example. Um, and so, you know, in one of your chapters, you kind of outline this for, you know, post-war has a very different meaning for those Japanese Americans who are in internment camps, for example. And so, so why is that?
2: Well, it's, you know, it's, there are so many post wars and post war. The way I started to understand it in the book is it's just a very personal term. It's a political process, it's an economic process, it's a policy process. But ultimately, um, w- war and the recovery from war is a fairly private experience. And so um, a, a GI has a post war that might begin in 1944 when he's discharged, but the war isn't over. Um, and for Japanese Americans who are incarcerated, um, they th- their post war um, is is several has several endings. Um, the United States government incarcerated them, and then very quickly began a dialogue about how long are we going to be able to keep people in prison, and how are we going to support this population when they get out? So they came to some policy decisions that enabled Japanese Americans to get out of camp on a work leave. So there's a post-internment, meaning Japanese Americans are allowed to leave camp starting in late 42, early 43. So there's post-internment, but the war is still going on. It's not post-war. then the war ends, and Japanese Americans um, are, and, and the evacuation orders are lifted in 1944 in December of 1944. So there's post-interment policy, meaning that policy is no longer appropriate, but the war is still going on. Then there's the war and the post-war, in which they become like every other American, that they're looking for the spoils of war. So endings meant many different things to different populations, depending on how they were experiencing the war.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today, that's Shopify.com/slash-system.
1: And how difficult was it for Japanese Americans to transition from internment to moving to a place like Chicago? What sort of um, uh, war liberalism kind of dividends were they looking to take advantage of, and, and what were the frustrations?
2: Well, it's a very um complicated process for them because if we think about war as i say in another part of the book war is violence it's sacrifice and it's loss but it's also an experience of governance for every american they're experiencing government during the war because as i say we build a warfare state um for japanese americans that state is a carceral state it imprisons them the wartime state imprisons them Then that very wartime state begins to think about um, internment as a welfare problem. How are we going to sustain these people? How are we going to support them? And what will they expect once they get out of camp? Because we have robbed them of their wealth. Um, And are we now responsible to restore that wealth? So... These questions are swirling over all kinds of personal and painful decisions for different family members to go on the outside, as some of them said. And in camp, there there is the familiarity of family and at least there's family cohesion. Uh, Of course, many families were also separated. Different people were taken to different camps. But um, once uh, some younger uh, Nisei begin to leave camp, um, the, the question becomes a migration question. How are they going to bring the rest of the family? How are they going to find housing for the rest of the family? How are they going to find work? How are they going to restore wealth? So these become practical questions, family questions, welfare questions, rebuilding questions. And beneath all of this is a very ambivalent relationship with the government. How are they going to ask the very government that imprisoned them for a hand up as they try to rebuild, and so their view of government undergoes a change during internment because it is it is governance was the cruelest and most uh, interventionist to them, but they know that they need governance. For example, in rent control uh, because they need housing, affordable housing. So it's a very tricky and complicated question, how much or how little government for these Americans.
1: You know, Most of our listeners will probably be most um, familiar with all the benefits that veterans um, get after the war. But one of the things that you try to bring out here is that it's also a really frustrating experience for veterans trying to get these benefits. And you write that, you know, veterans um, aren't exempt from uh, experiencing the larger, what you call the intractable flaw of the American welfare state, which is its decentralized and multi-track character. So what does that decentralized character look like for veterans?
2: Well, for veterans, and this is true, the welfare state in, in general in the United States, that, that there is federal funding, there's state funding, there's municipal funding, and there is a sort of delegated, as one call, scholar calls it a delegated welfare state, meaning we empower social service agencies to do the work, um, to use the federal funding and, and do that work locally. For veterans, there are all kinds of welfare states. There is the national welfare state, the Veterans Administration, where their GI Bill will, will come from. But the GI Bill is implemented locally. So to get a loan from the bank, one is having a very local experience. Um, and for veterans, you know, in a way, they are the most feted. Um, and provided for in the war. Um, as I say in the book, it, it, if we think about state policy, it's socialism for veterans and capitalism for the rest. Um, veterans get um, the most generous benefits of, as scholars have, have pointed out in the last several years, but to get the benefits um, is another story because the decentralized nature and character of the American welfare state. So if we think about what veterans are trying to do, and this is important because they're largely men, they're trying to establish a dependent relationship with governance. That is, they need something from the state alone, a job, um, and what have you, uh, health care. But they had, to ver- they had to fight very hard to become government dependents because of this decentralized design. And so in Chicago... Um, things did not go very smoothly for veterans. And this is not just a Chicago story. This is a national story where veterans learned that the GI welfare system was a system that had to be worked. It had to be figured out. It had to be navigated. Um, And so even as they were entitled to benefits, they found it very difficult to get the benefits. And and in this way, I look at post-war as a question for veterans as a question of how did they live the GI Bill? It's not really a factor on the GI Bill policy, but it's on the aftermath of that policy. How are ordinary Americans trying to live that policy?
1: And one of the other points you try to make in in this book is that that we should probably kind of expand how we understand the state. And this really comes out when you talk about working class women, um, where you suggest that the state was wherever a household need could be expressed and addressed. And so in this book, what counts as the state? Things that we might not necessarily um, automatically think about as as the state.
2: Well, as I said, the the nature of the American welfare state um, is decentralized and delegated. And... Uh, here I'm building on um, scholarship by historians and social welfare policy writers who who look at the state and have tried to define the state. And again, it's a slippery term like liberalism. Um, But scholars have talked about the American welfare state um, in this way that doesn't quite capture what's going on in Chicago neighborhoods. Uh, Post-war Chicagoans can't tell when they go to, um, the Salvation Army, if that place is getting federal funding, when they go to a settlement house looking for daycare options, they're not thinking through, is that funding for wealth, for childcare coming from the state, the nation, um, a local municipality, private funding, they, they can't distinguish between federal, state, municipal, or even charitable funding streams. And so they the state for them was where they could find help. And so that could be at a YMCA, that could be at the train station when the Travelers Aid Society first contacts them and helps them, that could be at a local designated welfare agency. Um, for Japanese Americans, the state was where they could find it, even as they were feeling very ambivalent about that state. Uh, for African Americans, again, who have a very complicated relationship to state governance, um, and states rights. Um, this the notion of relying on the state um, isn't simple And so they're looking for the state to be a resource to be a referral or as I say, to be a referee. Um, the state had to be accessible, it had to be approachable and and they don't distinguish between um, you know sort of official states and unofficial states. The state is, more than the official agency. It is where they can find help.
1: For you in the book talking about African-Americans and their kind of struggle to make war liberalism work for them. And of all the groups that you talk about in this book is, did African-Americans face the most difficulty in winning the dividends of war liberalism?
2: Well, you know, that's an interesting question if we think comparatively. And um, you know, and in some ways, we are we could say that um African Americans never experienced the the boom some did, some didn't. The evidence from Chicago is that they had to work very hard again to reap the benefits of the wartime and the post war state. They were proponents of rent control. Um they believed in the state as a referee, even as, again, I have to point out that many of these are Southerners and they're coming from situations where the state is not on their side. Um, but they had just fought World War II as a double V, victory over fascism abroad and victory um, um, over racism at home. And and so they're seeing the post-war in a way through this lens of victory. What does victory mean? What is it going to mean uh, to get the double V in peacetime? And and so they they are successful in some areas because we see clear evidence that they're able to get help from rent control um, officials, federal rent control officials adjudicated many, many, many African-American cases um, to good outcomes in that sense, the state is serving them. They're also going to, um, you know, the Urban League and the NAACP. And here, those those civil rights organizations are helping them make claims on the national state to get, for example, veterans benefits. So, so like Japanese Americans, they have an ambivalent relationship with government, and they're trying to navigate a complicated and changing post-war state because the national debate is how much or how little government are we going to need meanwhile on the ground they they have a very acute sense of what they need it's housing it's a good job it's it's safety and so they're using and trying to exploit the opportunities they have in very very local ways
1: well, I'd love to end just to have you talk a little bit about just how difficult it is to write a, a book like this because you're co- and cover so many great stories in this book. But even as when you when you talk about veterans, you would think that there would be all of these sources out there to get to their stories after um, wartime. But there, it's really hard to actually get their voices. Um, and so, how did you? get into the archives what sort of sources you talked a little bit about the rent control documents but how did you find all of these voices to make such a compelling story here
2: well thank you i you know storytelling is at the heart of our discipline but we we can't make things up even though <laughs> um, we'd, we'd like to sometimes, so we can put a bow on the ending, um, but you know historians are storytellers with arguments. we make arguments, we present evidence to support those arguments um, and it is difficult when you 're trying to tell complete stories because the paper trail never cooperates with you um, and so i in for example, with the rent control records, I was able to read incredibly moving uh, stories, but I couldn't always find the way the case ended. Uh, Was it a good result? Was it a bad result? Well, where would I find that? Sometimes the case went to court, so then I would follow that rent case into the municipal court system of the city of Chicago and find the outcome. Um, But often when we're trying to tell stories, the reality is we're meeting dead ends. And so we... We can speculate, but but very 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 carefully. Um, for women, it was hard. It was hard to tell their stories, and I had to tell a lot of their stories with some discomfort, often through the voices of the social agency professionals who were helping women. Um, mm-hmm. And and here, this you know, this is tricky because people who are involved in the helping professions are also involved in evaluating and judging the people were asking for the help. Um, So I had to read those documents with some discernment. Um, The Japanese American records um, were fascinating. Um, Some of them are up at UC Berkeley. Some of them are in Chicago these these organizations, they were self-help, as they called them, self-help organizations of Japanese Americans recovering from internment and trying to rebuild in Chicago. And these were just very direct dialogues about what recovery was going to mean for them and what they were going to ask for from the federal government. Um, but again, those were those were organizations. So um, to some degree, I was able to get close to um, Japanese American experiences but still within more organized uh, kinds of forums. Um, and finally, there's some oral histories. Because World War II is a fairly well-chronicled war in terms of oral histories, I was able to get people's stories um, through those um, windows. But but again, even living people don't tell stories that go into the <laughs> line, that sort of <laughs> organized in the way humans want to hear a beginning and a middle and an end. So I think one of the things about being... Being a historian is, is, is being a writer and a storyteller and thinking about how do you stay true to the history, but also tell a compelling story. And that is extraordinarily difficult. And it's something that I think we should talk about more as scholars because journalists often, um, get the, the stage or the audience for American history. And I, and I think it's unfortunate. Um, but part of it has to do with the way we write as academics. Um, and I think that's worthy of some, some further discussion in the profession.
1: Absolutely. Laura McEnany, thank you for being on the program.
2: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: The book is Post-War Waging Peace in Chicago. Thank you for listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.